This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I am going to shout out my patrons. I'm going to give you the two rules for today's podcast, and we're going to get well on our way. Hello, by the way, this is the QTR Podcast, if you've never been here before. Nice to see you. Today is October 15th, 2020. Let's get on with the goddamn show. First and foremost, my podcast is brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is the only place that I order my gold and silver from. I actually ordered some nice JM Bullion imprinted silver bars a couple of weeks ago, and they came in, and they look beautiful. So their in-house product is also – it's the first in-house product, I think, from them that I bought uh, since I've been buying from them. Great turnaround times, wonderful customer service, probably why JM Bullion has established a fantastic reputation for itself – over the last decade doing business and doing over $3 billion in sales. If you are interested in checking out JM Bullion, there is a link in the podcast description or you can email Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. If you let Kathy know that you're a QTR podcast listener, she'll give you $5 off your order and free shipping. Can't beat that, folks. Check out my friends at JM Bullion. This podcast also brought to you by The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a day trading and investing community that is not full of shitheads and scumbags. Imagine that. I keep watching these YouTube advertisements for all these terrible trading communities, and these guys that I know are just pumping and dumping garbage and crap onto their subscribers. And Pete Hedges, who's the guy that founded The Trader's Path, started his community because he wanted to do something different. I think he was involved with one of those companies in the past, though don't quote me on that. But I remember talking to Pete about why he wanted to start the Trader's Path because he just wanted some honesty. And I got to tell you, if you have an honest group of people tossing around trading ideas on a daily basis, and that's what Pete offers. He offers a live stream, a daily watch list, uh, commentary about stocks and options, investor education. They trade all different types of markets. That can be a very invaluable tool, especially if you are an active trader. So if you have the means, check out my buddy Pete over at the Trader's Path. The link to his service is in the podcast description. And if you look him up, tell him that QTR sent you. He'll make sure you get a free trial and a discount, whatever you want. Pete will make sure you get it. Speaking of people that will work with you because they are friends of mine, my buddies over at the Sanglucci Steam Room will do the exact same thing. The Steam Room was the first piece of software design that I can remember, going back a decade now, I think, when they started it, to track unusual options activity and flow in the options market, which is a great way to really telegraph a lot of times how things are going to go in the equities market. These guys were doing it before anybody else. I mean, everybody talks about unusual options activity now, but these guys were way ahead of the curve. Wall Street Jesus coined the terms put sweepers, call sweepers. Nobody was saying that shit before him. So 10 years ago, these guys started developing this piece of software that has evolved and continues to remain on the forefront of tape reading and market psychology uh, to this day. On top of that, I know Lucci. I know his partner, Charlie Bathgate. They're good guys. They're honest guys. They're guys that if you reach out to them and you tell them you heard about them, on the QTR podcast. They will make sure you get a free trial. You get a discount. So go and check out my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. Lucci also offers the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader, and his master course, which is a uh, crash course in financial education from Sang Lucci. All those links are in my podcast description. 
Today's podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold. Traders for a Cause, my favorite charity. I'll be speaking at that conference. It's a virtual conference this weekend. It is free. You can sign up at tradersforacause.org. They continue to support the podcast, and I love continuing to support them. My friends Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, my buddy Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus is in the house. Some of my newest patrons, too. John Fiorella, The Grid, Carell, Marcos M. Thank you guys so much. Matt Stilwell and Brett, Andrew Mitchell, Eric Reynolds and Jim Durkin. Thank you guys so much for your continued support of the podcast. And I want to shout out some patrons that have been with me for a little while. Like Carol, I appreciate you. Uh, Bart Coatwright, my friend uh, Mark and Chris Oriel. Thank you so much for your continued support, as well as James O'Byrne. Uh, Paul Brennan, my friend Nicholas Parks, of course, who I shouted out already. And uh, how about We're Doomed? We're Doomed is still in the house, going on two years. Thanks for your continued support, my kind friend Tommy B., my friend Pete Yarbrough, and Baz Trading, still in the house. If you don't know, there are two rules for this podcast. The first is, do not take anything that I say as investment advice, life advice, trading advice, ideological advice, or any kind of advice. This is just communication for the purposes of having an open discussion and an excuse to have a couple of drinks. Finally, this podcast has a three-drink minimum. The way that that works is it started at a two-drink minimum and it went up, like the stock market always does, to three. How do you like that? Maybe in a couple years, it'll be a four-drink minimum. Soon, it'll be so many drinks that you'll be declared legally dead before the podcast starts, which will save you the trouble of listening to my diarrhea of the mouth. With all that being said, it's lovely to have you here. (laughs) I have with me on the line today, now I think it's safe to say I can call him a friend of mine, Dr. Mark J. DeFont, who is a professor of geology, geochemistry at the University of South Florida. Uh, Before he became involved in research related to the misuse or misunderstanding of science by society, he is a skeptic. He specialized in the study of volcanoes, and more specifically, the geochemistry of volcanic rocks which uh, we're going to be discussing today. And we're also going to be talking uh, about the end of the world, which seems like it could be right around the corner, (laughs) was my idea. I said, (laughs) let's talk about existential threats to humanity. But first and foremost, Mr. DeFont, hello. And we've got to talk about what happened yesterday with this New York Post article, which I saw you tweeting about yesterday. Well, it's, it's great to be here. Chris, I always enjoy your show. So, uh, how would you like to start out? Um, well, I've, I've read some of your passionate tweets about last this. night. I know you are, and I also know that you want to be uh, mindful of having civil discourse about this. Um, you are a university professor, and so you want to make sure that you know, you're measured and calculated in the things that you say, but on the other hand, you know, you want to express your opinion um, and you want to, uh, you know, take advantage of your right to free speech. So to the de- extent that I saw your tweets last night, which were publicly available before we started talking today, what was interesting is you brought up one of the things that I first noticed, which is, uh, and we're talking, of course, about Twitter and Facebook censoring the New York Post's article yesterday of Hunter Biden's emails. And then there was a follow-up this morning talking about Hunter Biden in China. But you said something that I tweeted also too, which is, isn't it funny that 
It's the political party that is obsessed with ending fascism that is now censoring the mainstream media because they don't like their narrative. Yeah, I mentioned to you the duplicity. It's it's really stark. Uh, I just come from a time when freedom of speech was assumed. Everyone was for freedom of speech, and over the last 25, 30 years, that's become controversial. I can, I can hardly believe it. Uh, I, I remember when there were demonstrations at Berkeley for freedom of speech. Now Berkeley is shutting down freedom of speech. It, uh, it, it seems like uh, our democratic society is under assault. And uh, this, this whole thing with the New York Post uh, kind of um, kind of is a, a, a small part of the cosmos here of freedom of speech and the, the effort to deny people the ability to speak their minds because it happens to disagree uh, with your woke uh, position. So the New York Post, uh, it's, it's a major uh, publication. Uh, I, don't, I don't always agree with the New York Post. In fact, I most of the time don't have the time to read the Post, but I do know that it is a widely circulated newspaper, one of the biggest in the country. And yet, f for the first time that I can remember... Um, we have had social media silencing a major newspaper in this country because, uh, in my opinion, they didn't want it to hurt the presidential candidate that they're uh, copiously supporting with uh, tremendous financial benefits. Now, this is more than just a Democrat-Republican thing. Uh, I see this as, uh, you know, the democracy at stake here. Um, I'm wondering constantly whether the press hasn't crossed the Rubicon and uh, on their way to to uh, destroy the democracy of Rome, so to speak. Um, I I was stunned by uh, people defending the actions. Uh, I had a lot of people uh, responding to my my uh, tweets and trying to. Uh, legally defend uh, um, Twitter and Facebook. Look, I know these are private media organizations, and in general, private media organizations under the law have the right to do what they want to do. But I think that um, Twitter, Google, and Facebook are at a whole nother level. Uh, they uh, claim that they want uh, the open uh, discussion but they've made their rules such that they can ban anybody they want to at any time. Uh, so I, I question their desire for open discussion. And when you have the power to silence uh, people and, and papers, uh, Fox has had the same problem with Twitter and Facebook. In fact, both CEOs of the company have uh, – expressed uh, left-wing ideology. So uh, I'm, I'm worried. Yeah, I'm worried about the democracy of our country. 
And like you said, look, as a libertarian, I'm fine with any private company making any decisions that they want. Okay, so I will support that as a as a private company. If you want to censor your content, then that's your prerogative. But you cannot keep the benefits that are afforded to you of being a public forum and not a publisher legally if you are editing and censoring the content on your platform, right? Oh, yeah, you, you made a great point. Uh, the way I see it is that, well, uh, you said it best. I can't articulate it better than that. They have all of the benefits of uh, a public platform, but uh, they surreptitiously uh, silence people they don't want to hear from. And the New York Post article is a perfect example of that. They use their rules about fake news uh, to... Uh, to silence an article they thought would hurt uh, Biden. Now, now look, I, I I'm not for fake news, but this this is was very clearly expressed in the New York Post article. Uh, they have tens of thousands of emails sent out by Hunter Biden uh, in uh, at least a five year period. Uh, this is uh, I don't think there's much question about. Uh, whether this is uh, legit or not. So maybe, maybe you know something about it, I don't. But uh, I, I think it was outrageous uh, that they s- sanctioned this article um, because of some nonsense about fake news or all the other rules they tried to, to use uh, to, to silence. I think Twitter finally last night realized they'd made a huge mistake. But I think it's, I think it, it's uh, already... Uh, Cats out of the box, so to speak. Oh, yeah. You want to add to that? I don't don't, get it it right here. I think anything else that they say at this point, they're just making it worse. I think Jack's statement last night of, ah, you know, we fucked up was fine. But then to have the Twitter support account try to justify the precise reasoning as to why they did what they did, I think made them look... Foolish. I'm, I mean, let me just address what you just said, okay, about the, the authenticity. That seems to be the talking point of the left right now. Oh, it was inauthentic. You know, the emails were made up. Uh, you know, are you really going to believe a story about a guy who's a computer shop owner that just falls ass backwards into Hunter Biden's emails? Well, take a look at the photographs, okay? Really? You know, there's a photograph of Hunter Biden laying in bed with a crack pipe in his mouth. Did he generate that? Did they did they Photoshop that? I mean, did you see all the selfies? They posted three more of them this morning on the New York Post. So if the photographs are authentic, they had to come from somewhere. And if they came from the same laptop, well, it's pretty reasonable to believe that the emails are authentic. The Biden campaign hasn't refuted that the emails are authentic yet. At least I didn't see them come out and, and question the uh, uh, whether or not they were uh, legitimate emails. I mean, so that that kind of tacitly is an admission that maybe that they are. Um, and the laptop was turned over to the FBI as well, right? So one would expect yes. that if the New York Post conjured up a story out of nowhere to harm the Biden campaign, that the FBI would step in and say, all right, well, this is bullshit. We've seen the laptop. And none of these things uh, are authentic, but but none of those things happened. And so it's it's a very interesting experiment in human psychology to see 
the left gravitate to this talking point that came out of somewhere that these emails are inauthentic because that really doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, once again, you're making great points. I I think I'm most uh, I'm more upset uh, about well well I'm more upset about how you look at it from the reverse. If uh, this had been something uh, that Trump had done, uh, I I have no uh, doubt in my mind uh, that it would be an article uh, allowed to be out there. In fact, the New York Times constantly publishes, uh, believe it or not, America's premier newspaper has been constantly publishing um, politically oriented and factually uh, bankrupt articles which show up and are allowed to exist on Twitter and Facebook. But the New York Post uh, prints a, a factually sound article uh, and it gets, uh, it gets stifled. So uh, th- that kind – well, I, I posted something last night about how loathsome the press has become. Uh, you know, these people are supposed to be professionals, but if you take a look at what the press is doing, there's, there's nothing uh, objective about it. I'm a scientist. I expect the press to be like I am uh, or what, what scientists try to be, and that is objective. And I don't see any objectivity in the press. This was automatically dismissed by everyone. CNN didn't report it, if my uh, information is correct. MSNBC didn't report it. And I don't think ABC, NBC, or CBS reported it. This, is, this may be one of the big stories of the year, and it's being ignored by all of the major networks. Instead of reporters going out and trying to objectively find out if the New York Post article is right, correct, right. there was a, doing almost nothing. automatically a, a gut reaction that you know that this is fake news. Let's get rid of this. This might hurt our boy Biden. So, so the lack of objectivity in the press makes me think that they have uh, they have the respectability uh, below uh, what we think of for a used car salesman. Uh, these people are, uh, are whoa, they've lost all, all my respect. I'll tell you that. Not, not that that matters much, I guess, but anyway. Well, the question is now, too, is this an example that's egregious enough to turn some heads? I mean, I started talking to, uh, or I spoke with several people that voted for Trump in 2016 over the last couple of years that did so almost out of spite of the political system, almost out of spite of the Mm -hmm. press. And Mm. I'm wondering if this isn't a digestible enough example for the everyday person, maybe the everyday, you know, working man or the everyday working Democrat or somebody that finds themselves a centrist or undecided. If this isn't a digestible enough example of them of exactly how skewed the playing field, because I got to say, the Streisand effect that is occurring here with this becoming a bigger story Mm -hmm. due to the Mm cover-up is making it a much bigger deal than it would have been if they just would have let it go. And so what do you think? I mean, do you think that this is a digestible enough example 
for the everyday U.S. citizen as to what's going... Like, you think this could open up the Pandora's box for some people as to what we've seen from the media over the last couple of years? I, I don't know, Chris. You know, uh, I'll tell you what happened, uh, just to give you my personal perspective, because at the end of the day, I guess that's all that it is. Um, my wife and I have watched uh, CBS News every night for years and years and years. And sometime around 2016, we started noticing that CBS was not covering some of the important articles. Uh, and so we started switching over to NBC and ABC, and we started noticing the same thing there. So uh, finally, uh, I found, uh, I, I always thought Fox News was, you know, kind of skewing the results towards a conservative perspective. So I was always very reluctant to watch Fox News. Well, I started watching Brett Baer, and I started getting a full bevy of of news. So if a you know if a a cop shot a black man, uh, this made national uh, news. But if uh, a cop illegally shot a white guy, it, it was uh, buried uh, somewhere. You know. So or if a Hispanic, I I don't I don't remember um, the details of it. But there was a Hispanic guy that shot a woman in San Francisco, uh, and he was an illegal immigrant that had been let out of jail six or seven times. And uh, he was, um, that was not reported, if I remember correctly, uh, by uh, PBS or NBC or ABC. And I started thinking, whoa, what is going on here? Why are we being held back from uh, some of these uh, other views that, you know, don't, sort of meet the woke environment that we live in. So, look, I want my news to be objective. If I, I'm not here to – I don't watch news to get, you know, the opinions of, of the woke or to have it um, screened for me so that, you know, maybe I don't see something they don't want me to see. That, that sounds like uh, what uh, the Soviet Union used to be like. Well, and this idea that, you know, Twitter just pulled this stuff down because they couldn't verify it. It's like, that's not your job. That's why the New York Post has editors, right? That's why the New York Times has editors. It's their job to verify it before publishing a story. You know, like you said, the New York Post has been around for something like 218 years. As far as establishing themselves and you can argue that they're a tabloid you can argue that this that and the other but as far as the burden of presenting something that needs to be factually accurate uh to a certain degree you know that they're going to meet that criteria before they publish i mean it's not it's not the national Enquirer, right it's uh well right so the idea that twitter has to then say well, our editors haven't verified this. We haven't verified the claims in here. It's like, nobody gives a shit. You guys aren't, you know, you guys aren't editors. You guys aren't newspaper editors, news magazine editors. You're not journalists. So what are you then? Then you're just what? You're activists, right? Well, yeah, you know, you know this whole idea of verifying, 
I, I doubt seriously if Twitter uh, would have published the Pentagon Papers if uh, if they were going to you know do verification. Uh, so you know, what we'd have to do wait a couple of weeks uh, before anybody published the Pentagon Papers because uh, they couldn't verify it. That's how uh, that's how crazy this seems to me. Uh, if you're going to uh, verify it, it seems like they are. If they don't like an article, uh, and they don't agree with it, uh, then all of a sudden it needs to be verified. Uh, look, you're right. The New York Post is uh, an established newspaper, and they have editors, and they thought this was a big story. And by the way, I don't know if you read the story, but they documented, I think, pretty uh, soundly that that this was huge. Tens of thousands of emails, pictures you mentioned. Uh, it would have taken tens of thousands of hours, in my opinion, to fake all the stuff that they have on this computer. So, so verify. Come on. Uh, you're right. This is a newspaper. They don't have to agree with it. But when you start uh, silencing newspapers, uh, then it seems to me that you're you're trying uh, specifically to deny uh, your your people on this public um, social media from hearing uh, what the other side is saying. And I think you made a good point before, too, when you said, you know, if this was an article about the Trump campaign, all these other media outlets would be rushing to either confirm it or deny it. You know, they would want to corroborate it or right. they would want to... Uh, right. say that it's not legitimate, but we didn't see such reporting from ABC, nope. CBS, you know, NBC. Nobody nobody rushed out and, and decided, all right, well, this is actually a story. Because, it, I mean, when you think about it, it's an enormous story. I mean, it's not just an enormous story because of the content, because of, okay, here's the emails. But if you think back to how many times Joe Biden has come out and said, I didn't talk to my son about his business dealings. Correct. And when he said it publicly. He's lied. <laughs> well, lie is a almost an understatement. If if they well, had the chance is. if they had the chance to catch Trump in a lie like that, it would be nonstop 24-7. But a lie Mark. No, no, no. It'd be more than that. It would be uh, they would be starting right now to impeach him. I guarantee you. And the fucking crazy thing is that you know this was I was going through this same kind of neurological uh, inventory, trying to figure out if I needed a lobotomy or not a couple months ago. When after they moved to impeach Trump over that transcript of the phone call that I read and seemed innocuous, right. but Joe Biden is on video saying, hey, you know, we're going to withhold the billion dollars unless he does what we want him to do. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, certainly seems like Joe Biden is doing exactly what the Democrats are impeaching Trump for. And now, you know, I tweeted out yesterday, how, if you are on the left and you supported the impeachment, how do you square the circle of what these emails reveal, not just the conduct and whether or not it's detrimental to the U.S., but the lies about it. Holy shit. The I'm lies kidding. about it. Since 2016, nothing has become fair. 
anything you want to do in the press or in politics seems to be uh, open uh, to do. You know, I don't get it. All Biden had to say was, oh, this has all been settled. Well, what's been settled? How has it been settled? Nobody's ever said to, to us how uh, this whole Burisma thing has been settled. His son got on a board. I think he was paid $85,000 a month. He got on this board to make that kind of money. Now, I presume that the Russians are not idiots or the Ukrainians are not idiots, that they're paying him this money for something, of uh, not just to have him on the board. So so what is he giving them uh, that is worth $85,000 a, a month? Well, we all know uh, what it is. It's access to his father at some level. And now here's where the emails come in and, and are so important. Now we have proof that in fact they did get access uh, to Biden. So uh, we've come now full circle and made the tie. And I, that, that's one of the reasons why I think the uh, Post article is so important and why uh, Twitter has gone and Facebook, they've gone to so much trouble to bury this thing. And you can tell, I went back last night and watched the highlights from the first presidential debate. And- uh uh-huh. You can tell when Trump starts going in on Biden about it. I mean, this answer of, you know, oh, we've already, you know, like, hey, this is over and done with. And, you know, you're just rambling on about a conspiracy. I mean, it was in some respect, it was the same as Hillary's emails. Right. Bernie Sanders. saying, I I think people are tired of hearing about your damn emails. It's like, actually, we're not because she received a subpoena and then she deleted 33,000 emails. So. Something's going on there that those, you know, that that happens for a reason. And it's the same deal here. It's like, okay, well, why would he come out and lie about it? Because obviously now he's lying. So like you said, you know, I mean, if Trump, if Ivanka Trump had gotten a three and a half million dollar wire from the wife of the mayor (laughs) of Moscow. Okay. Mark, after all the Russiagate stuff turned up nothing. Biden's son gets a three and a half million dollar wire from the wife of the mayor of Moscow. I mean, it, if you have any uh, any Democrats, I don't know the makeup of your audience, but if you have any Democrats out there listening, but all, all I would do is to urge them to try to take a look at the bias in the press and if that doesn't tell you um, all you need to know uh, about how corrupt our our country's press has become uh, because that's what finally got me what was seeing how the the press selectively chooses articles to publish and ignores other articles so we're being we're being um, very subtly indoctrinated into critical theory. Uh, now that's a hot topic. I'm not sure I want to, you know, delve into that uh, very much. But uh, <laughs> it's because, c- you know, uh, well, I won't go into that. But yeah, yeah. So I think I think that that the press has just simply become uh, the mouthpiece uh, for wokeness. 
And as a scientist, you know, you said earlier, you're looking for objectivity. And I'm not a scientist, but to some degree, I also, that's what I want to, that's what I want, that's where I want to be coming from. I want to be coming from a position of what are the indisputable facts and then what's being reported. And so oftentimes when an article or something comes out that's slightly, you know, uh, would be considered a pro for Trump, or if he does something good, you know, like, for instance, when he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, I'll look at what the headline is on Fox News, and then I'll also go to CNN's website, and I'll also go to MSNBC's website, and oftentimes you see it's just not even on there. It's not Right, even, or they were incredulous over it. <laughs> yeah, and so it's, I mean, look, my mom always says, the people in charge of media organizations all have an agenda. And so you have to know going in that you're going to get that spin. And that's fine. You know what? I almost don't even mind that. But people have to understand that that this is what's happening. I mean, I said to my dad a couple months ago, I said, you know, I used to watch CNN all the time. I said, what the hell happened? I said, did I change or did they change? And he said, no, I think I think they changed. You know, they changed. So the the other thing, too, is this idea that you mentioned earlier about the social media companies. Not just it's not just the censorship. It's the idea that they need to protect us. And that is what agitates the shit out of me. I actually I deleted my personal Facebook um, yesterday and I had been mulling doing that for about a month. And it didn't have anything to do with this Biden story because that just came out yesterday. But it did it did have to do with every time I logged into my Facebook, the app telling me that I needed to vote. And I noticed that, too. I just didn't like that. I don't you know, one reminder is fine if they said it. So all right, one thing pops up, check your voting area, check your voter registration whatever all right fine it's being it's trying to be helpful whatever but every day for the last month i've logged on facebook or instagram for that matter or even twitter does the same thing you know learn how to register even to vote. credit karma <laughs> yeah do you know your polling place do you know this do you know that it's like fuck me leave me alone i'm fucking 38 years old you know what i mean like i'm an adult if I haven't figured it out now on my own anyways, you're not going to be the savior that's going to come in and, you know, d- flip the switch in my head. If I'm that, you know, if I'm that helpless and I haven't figured out how to vote by age 38, you know, Facebook, oh, oh good, okay, oh, Facebook told me how to do it. Like, that's not going to be the solution. But the idea that they, well, they also need to cover up the, they need to filter the media because we're incapable of making our decisions based on facts is to me, it's offensive. Sorry, go ahead. Well, Chris, no, it's it's more than that. I think, uh, in, in, unless you're a blithering idiot, and I know you're not, you know that uh, um, the Democrats win the more people vote. So they're not being subtle at all about it. They want as many people to vote as they possibly can, uh, so that uh, they can guarantee. Uh, the Democrats win this election. So that that is uh, a definitely a policy, in my opinion, uh, that uh, is done uh, to favor their side. Uh, is is that uh, fair? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, 
they've also tried to uh, well I, I won't get into that but yeah it's it's outrageous so if you go to twitter's trending page right now and i'm looking at it live okay it's october 15th 2020 and it's 1203 in the afternoon eastern time so it's a day after the biden story broke and several hours after the follow-up this morning the lead on twitter's trending page is an article that says Joe Biden did not push out a, U- a Ukrainian prosecutor for investigating his son, comma, the Washington Post confirms. Okay, that's the first thing. And then under that, PhDs is trending. And under that, there is a hashtag Eric Trump's Ukraine scandal that is uh, <laughs> trending about a photograph of Eric Trump in the Ukraine from like 2014, where he's just sitting at a table and there's no context around it. So the Twitter has ignored the biggest story, you know, possibly of the el- entire election campaign and is reporting this Washington Post article saying, okay, well, Joe Biden's innocent. And it is allowing something called Eric Trump's Ukraine scandal to trend. I mean, and I'm fine with both of them if they would just let the other side of the story trend also, right? I agree. I noticed that this morning, by the way, and and I don't understand uh, why that's uh, significant and should be uh, trending like that. Uh, Even Joe Biden has admitted that he tried to get the prosecutor fired. So... I I don't I don't think anyone has said that that prosecutor was investigating his son, that 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 prosecutor was uh, uh, investigating Burisma. So Joe Biden getting that prosecutor uh, fired was uh, the result of well I should say kept him from uh, investigating Burisma. I think that that's very factual and accepted by everyone. So. So who cares? I mean, yeah, he he didn't uh, go after Joe Biden's son, Hunter, in particular, but he was after Burisma. And so Joe Biden got the guy fired. Who who benefits from that? Well, of course, Burisma, uh, where his son works or worked, uh, benefited from it. So it, it would seem to me uh, that they benefited a great deal, Burisma, that is, from having access to Joe Biden. And that he got the prosecutor fired. And that that headline that's trending number one is cleverly worded. It is. It's cleverly it is. worded for a reason. It is. I noticed that too. To kind of just 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 to create to create just enough confusion to kind of make it a wash, right? But we have indoctrinated our students for the last thirty years. Uh, we have on the university campuses told our students that they should be open-minded to everything, that they shouldn't be selective, they shouldn't be skeptical. And of course, when you tell everyone they should be open-minded to everything and anything, uh, then you open Pandora's box. You can say silly things like science is uh, uh, a Western civilization's uh, colonialism and it's uh, Western civilization's uh, mi- uh, creation myth and so on and so forth. That's the kind of nonsense I hear uh, on college campuses uh, over the last 30 years. 
that's the kind of thing that uh, you can promote and you can uh, then question science. Of course, none of these people uh, have brain surgery uh, with a witch doctor uh, from, uh, you know, someplace uh, in, in <laughs> another part of the world. They go to doctors that are based in science. Right. But, of course, uh, they want us to believe that science has no uh, special position on understanding the physical world. Well, that's a total nonsense, and everyone knows it uh, that uh, hasn't been indoctrinated. So, when you but when you keep pumping people with this message of be open, uh, then uh, then you're going to be open to being indoctrinated, and that's that's what's happened. I mean, we used to think things. I I heard uh, uh, that uh, this uh, senator from Hawaii, I can't pronounce her name, is it Hikoma or Corona, something like I that? Think. Yeah, she's outraged over um, the use of sexual preference. So, you know, somehow now using the word sexual preference is uh, she she said that Barrett was um, was saying hurtful things because she said that she was uh, not in favor or, or yes, wasn't in favor of sexual preference. So. The, the term now sexual preference, if you're gullible, has been some sort of offensive thing. They can tell us anything. In fact, I think the dictionary changed the meaning of the, of the word last night. So I'm just pulling my hair out at how gullible uh, the woke seem to be. That overnight uh, something can become offensive because uh, – uh, somebody they want uh, they don't want for the Supreme Court use the term. By the way, uh, Biden has used the term sexual preference quite a bit uh, over the years. So, looks like uh, we ought to uh, be calling him uh, an evil person because he's used that. I can't think of an any. I, I honestly, when I hear the word sexual preference, I mean that just sounds like. An objective term to give the power to the individual to describe what their preference is. I mean, how do you get offended about that? Apparently, uh, they do. You know? <laughs> no, well, nobody's saying you can't have sex with this guy or that guy or whatever. Or, you know, you can't have sex with this gender or this race or this religion. Sexual preference. What is your sexual preference? Do you like to have sex with so-and-so people while you're getting, you know, whacked in the face with a hockey stick, whatever you're into. It's your sexual preference. You're giving, you're bestowing the power unto the person that is, yes. you know, declaring their preference. So I, I'm not a scientist, but that sounds like a relatively objective thing to ask for, isn't it? But this gets back to the, our whole thing uh, on, on discussion of the duplicity of the left. Uh, if Barrett hadn't said it during the hearings yesterday, it would have been a perfectly good phrase to use. Right. But because she said it, and that the, a senator from Hawaii said, oh, this is a terrible thing to say, you've offended some people, uh, all of a sudden she's a bad person. This is how wokeness works. Uh, if you can indoctrinate people to believing that you're uh, caring and loving towards other people, uh, then you can get people on... Uh, almost anything you want to get them on, just just claim that they've been offensive. So I'm I'm sure that us e even talking uh, about criticism of the woke is offending a massive number of people out there, or would. So 
it's an it's we ha- we've gone insane as a country. I, oh, I, 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 we, we honestly have. I mean, did you see Cory Booker? Talk about perpetuating another lie, by the way, that the media has been perpetuating. Cory Booker gets his chance to ask questions of the potential Supreme Court nominee. And what does he ask? Are you a white supremacist? <laughs> you know, like you want to talk about making a mock. This is a woman who has an adopted black child. Well, that's even more evidence in their minds. Yeah. Are you a white I don't know how it is, but it is. First off, I thought she handled a lot. Of, and I, listen, I don't. I am likely not going to agree with all of this woman's rulings. But I thought she handled herself with she some did. class and with some grace. And I thought she did a very good job. But this, this guy Booker comes out and asks, are you a white supremacist? And then when she says no... He says, "Well, that's more than our uh, that's more than our president can admit to," which of course goes back to this idea that Trump has never renounced white supremacy, which just isn't true. It's just not true. They keep taking that. Well, I saw him renounce it. I, I watched him on a live broadcast renouncing it. He said, "I totally condemn David Duke." I totally condemn the Ku Klux Klan. Those were his exact words. And then this that was in 2016. Then in a subsequent interview, he denounced, uh, I forget what he said, but he denounced white supremacy again in a subsequent interview. And then in this debate, the one that just occurred, Chris Wallace goes, hey, uh, are you, you know, are you, are you willing and able here on stage to denounce white supremacy? And he goes, sure. And then he asks him again, fully denounce white supremacy. Trump goes, sure. And then moves on to saying, but we got to talk about Antifa. Well, that's not him not denouncing it. That's just him not opining on it and not spending all this time on it. Or saying exactly what Chris Wallace wanted him to say. I don't know, man. I think I'm losing my mind a little bit. But I thought Wallace, for instance, when Trump started challenging Biden on the Hunter Biden wires, and Wallace kind of conveniently stepped in. I mean, why why didn't a debate moderator ask that question? Don't I mean, if Trump's tax returns can come up, don't you think that that's fair game? Yep, I agree. Well, I I think everyone knows that Wallace is a never Trumper, so he he's not a um, politically neutral on this, in my opinion. So so as we're watching the world end in front of our, <laughs> in front of our eyes and go insane, that's a great segue to. Uh, one of the things that we originally had planned on talking about before the Biden mess came up, well, we had to get that stuff out, which was uh, existential threats to mankind, which I thought is an interesting topic for a couple of reasons. One is you're a specialist on uh, and an expert on volcanoes, which I know nothing about. So I have mm-hmm. a couple of questions about that. Two is we are in the midst of this pandemic right now, which, um, as it turns out, is... Uh, you know, it's not it's not an instant death sentence, but it is, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes up to the possibility of something much worse, something with a higher fatality rate that is more contagious, kind of making its way around. And, you know, as a scientist, I was kind of interested in your take on these types of existential threats, because we had talked about comets before and the possibility of, you know, a comet hitting the Earth and uh, the first question I have is, uh, and this is going to be stupid, but you got to forgive me. There's no volcano out there that poses that's big enough to pose a 
massive threat to all of humanity, is there? Well, I I don't think there is. It just depends on what you mean by threat. I, I, I think there are some volcanoes, Yellowstone being one of them, that uh, could uh, certainly um, wipe out a lot of people in North America. Really? Um, yeah. So, and Lord knows what that would do uh, to the planet uh, in terms of environment. So, that we've had huge, huge eruptions on in in Yellowstone National Park. Well, there's a hot spot under Yellowstone National Park, and it's er- erupted several times. I, I, I'm sorry, the dates escape me, but I think it it last erupted. Uh, 350,000 years ago and it's it it uh, erupts about every 350,000 years you have to check me on the facts there but so I think we're due for that to to erupt one of these days of course it could be another million years before it erupts but uh, it's there and uh, it it is uh, potentially dangerous like s- some other places in in the world that are these big massive volcanoes so what does that look like in Yellowstone? Like, how big is it? What are we talking about? What is a volcano? You know, what what exactly are we dealing with there in Yellowstone? Well, it's a it's a huge volcano. I mean, it's it's called caldera. It's just just gigantic. Uh, when I say caldera, uh, it's a when you have a lot of magma uh, below a, a volcano and it comes out. Uh, in eruptions, it leaves a void space uh, below the volcano, and oftentimes the volcano will then collapse into that uh, vacated area and form uh, a big structure called a caldera, which is it looks like a crater, only it's sometimes miles wide. And uh, I think Lake Yellowstone is in that caldera. If you know how big Lake Yellowstone is, it's uh, it's monstrous. Uh, I'm not a specialist on Yellowstone. I don't work on that area or those kinds of volcanoes. It's a hotspot volcano. Um, so as North America moves westward, uh, the magma chamber stays in one position and continuously erupts. So you can follow volcanoes back into, I think, Idaho across Montana or um, across Wyoming anyway, into Idaho, uh, the hotspot volcanism over the – uh, millions of years but uh, to answer your question no I don't think uh, I don't think that it's possible to have a volcanic eruption that is an existential threat to our species but uh, there are some big volcanoes out there that can kill massive numbers of people I think I read somewhere where about 10% of the population lives near an active volcano so uh you take Naples, all, I think Naples, a couple million people, they could all be wiped out by a, a massive eruption um, on Vesuvius. Or there's even a, a, there's a hot spot located near Vesuvius, right almost practically downtown Naples. It's a little bit further out, but uh, that could, if that erupted, it could be worse than any eruption at Vesuvius and uh, destroy all of Naples. 
In fact, we've had these kind of ruptures in the past. Um, in fact, a place I've worked in the past, the Martinique uh, in the Lesser Antilles, they have a volcano there uh, called Mount Pelee. And it erupted in 1902, killed about 30,000 people. A lot of, uh, not only was the town heavily populated, but a lot of tourists went to watch it erupt. So it got extremely populated during the eruption, and then a lot of those tourists ended up dying in the eruption. So I guess that's kind of a warning if you want to go volcano touring. Yeah, there's certainly one of these things that people don't really think about as a threat. I mean, I don't. I I assume I don't live near a, a semi-active volcano. Otherwise, I might know about it. But I can't imagine that everybody living in the surrounding areas worry about it uh, often. It's like I'll give you a good example. I live in an area where, when I drive a certain way and I get about thirty or forty-five minutes outside of town, I drive past a uh, a nuclear power plant, and I always think uh-huh. to myself, "Ah, it's right there," you know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> ah, right. You know, like, you don't think about it when I'm at my house and I'm watching a football game and drinking a beer or I'm shooting a shit with you on a podcast or taking my car through the fucking car wash. I'm not thinking about it. But every once in a while I drive down this stretch of road and I'm just like, ah, there it is. <laughs> you know, like hope, yeah, everything, hope everything's going miles. good. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I'm not how do I want to put this? I, I think that nuclear energy has evolved so much since, uh, we had problems. Um, where is it? Pennsylvania where they three mile Island, uh, that uh, the safety measures are, are in place where we should probably be reconsidering, um, nuclear energy. I, I just don't see how we're going to stop countries from producing CO2 from fossil fuels. So I agree that that we should be concerned about uh, uh, polluting our environment with uh, carbon dioxide and methane, but I think we should take a rational approach to it. Countries like China and India are not going to go off co- – um, uh, coal or, or gas and oil uh, to to c- c- just and destroy their economy in the process, and right. we shouldn't. Eat. So I think we have to come up with alternatives. Certainly, one of them is to consider a nuclear energy. But you got me off the the subject. You want to talk about existential threats, and I agree, it's an interesting subject. I've just been working on uh, uh, a section of my book. Uh, rewriting it on on asteroids and uh, comets and uh, that that is a, a real existential threat we could be uh, struck by a large uh, asteroid probably not a comet but certainly uh, an asteroid uh, what's the difference you know, any, well uh, an asteroid we have uh, the asteroid belt which you uh, may be familiar with it's between Mars and Jupiter and there should be a planet there, but the gravitational pull between the sun and Jupiter has caused a gravitational instability in that area, which has kept uh, any planet from forming. So instead of forming a planet uh, when the solar system uh, 
was generated from the collapse of a solar nebula, it formed uh, just a, a mass of rocks out there. And that these are these go from all uh, sizes, from dust particles to rather uh, large objects, uh, not planet-sized objects, but certainly uh, pushing moon-sized objects. And uh, they, they are uh, oftentimes pulled out of their orbit around the sun, and they go through or can go through the solar system and strike the planets. You've had a lot of that. You may be familiar with the with the, the uh, meteorite impact at the end of the Cretaceous that destroyed uh, the dinosaurs and 75% of the species. That was about 66 million years ago. So, so it's entirely possible that we could have another large event uh, that may uh, seriously jeopardize life on the planet, certainly jeopardize humans. We do, though, have, uh, uh, I think we have a satellite that, monitors uh, things that can intersect with our planet. And so most of the large things are probably covered. Uh, so we'll know if they're headed towards our planet. It's the smaller stuff that I worry about. Uh, Chelyabinsk, you may remember that asteroid shooting star that went across the sky in Russia and Siberia. And yeah. It, did a, a, it blew up in the atmosphere and shattered windows throughout the the city below those happen um if memory serves about on average every 50 to 100 years i'd have to check but i think that's about how often they occur and that was a small so, that was a small guy compared to yeah that you know, was what we're some. talking about right so and then there was the asteroid that hit in um I guess Chelyabinsk technically isn't in in Siberia; it's in southern Russia. But uh, the one that uh, Tunguska uh, in early 1900s—if uh, that would have hit a, a population center, you know, perhaps millions would have died from that. It uh, somebody calculated that it it knocked over 80 million trees. Yeah, Siberia. So. They didn't get to study it because there were problems in Russia, uh, you know, the the Bolsheviks, and they were fighting, the Red and the White Army were fighting, so they didn't get out there to study it, I think, until 1929. Is there anything astronomically or geographically that makes these uh, incidents more predisposed to happen in one area of the Earth? Uh, only, as far as I know, only... Uh, striking uh, oceans it's much more likely to strike an ocean than it is a, a, a land because um, oceans cover more area but if you look at um, all the recent large strikes on a map and and they have it on wikipedia if uh, your uh, listeners want to go there uh, you can see that the distribution of of impacts over the last however long they've been monitoring them, uh, at least 30 years, I would imagine, uh, they're uh, distributed rather evenly across the Earth. It's just that our, our population centers are small compared to the rest of the right. land area. 
which is, you know, statistically then uh, it's going to be more probable that it doesn't hit a population center than it does, than if it does. I mean, the truth is it's just a mat- mathematical uh, certainty that at some point something is going to wipe us out. Same. Well, I don't know about wipe us out, but it's a mathematical certainty that we'll, oh, we'll have an, uh, uh, one of these objects intersect with Earth. And we'll have to, you know, take action. But but we it could could be, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years from now. So I don't I don't want to yeah, even if it yeah. But even if it isn't a asteroid, I mean, something is going to end the human race eventually, right? Oh yeah, I, I I think that's a legitimate thing to say. I think the life expectancy of a species is about a a million years on average. So what we've been around a couple hundred thousand years. Yeah. Now, you know, mathematicians love questions like these. I've seen calculations where they go out and play with the statistics to say how long humans will will uh, exist statistically. Those are those are fun uh, things to read. Yeah. Well, it just feels like you know one of the things I always take comfort in. I used to worry all the time. I would worry about existential threats every day. I would wake up and I'd be uh-huh. thinking about uh, asteroids. I'd be thinking about you know nuclear power plants exploding. I'd be thinking about you know famine and pestilence and all these you know ways for the human race to die. And then once I started to figure out the probability of how these things happen over the time scale in which they happen, I I got a lot of confidence. Um, a you know went through years of therapy, which helped and stopped worrying about things that I couldn't change. <laughs> But B, you know, you start to realize that it, that it, the human lifespan of 70 years, 80 years is such a minuscule amount of time and that the odds that something, you know, massive is going to happen on, uh, you know, compressed within that timeline, um, you know, are, are very, very slim. Like you said, if something happens once every 350,000 years, even with a even with a 10% margin of error, you're talking 35,000 years, right? <laughs> sure, sure. So. Well, you bring up a good point. I, I think that as a group of people, the radical left and, and to some extent Democrats are some of the most negative people I've ever been around. I tend to be a, a pretty positive person. So I, I just constant – this constant negativity, the world's going to end, the environment's going to be destroyed, the, you know, whatever it is. Somebody's wringing their hands about it on the left, and uh, I—if we might talk about the existential threat from global warming—I think that I think that it's uh, it's blow, overblown, and I've I've read a lot on the subject. It's this this um, this idea that the Earth is going to end in ten years. Oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> It's uh, uh, short of of some you know major uh, event that we are right. totally un, unaware of uh, that is so statistically improbable. I can uh, assure anyone that that we're good for ten years, <laughs> and uh, probably uh, hundreds of thousands of years. So this wringing of the hands. I see it as a just an effort to get people worried, uh, so that they can push their 
whatever it is they're trying to push. Uh, I just read a great book uh, called False Alarm, so I'd recommend it to to your audience. Um, he's an uh, economist. I think you are too, right, Chris? What an economist? You're yeah. Uh-huh. Oh hell no! No 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 no. Oh, I, I thought just... you were. No, I mean, well, I work in finance, but I don't consider myself yeah, that's an economist, you know. Well, you might enjoy the book from its economics perspective, but he's gone through the economics. And if we continue down this road of trying to push getting rid of uh, carbon dioxide, we will absolutely destroy our economies. So I think people need to to always be thinking about the pros and cons. If you do one thing, there's going to be an effect. Right. Uh, so or this uh, massive new green deal nonsense, it'll destroy the economy. Do we really want people out of work? Uh, his point is that if we stay on fossil fuels, we'll have the money generated uh, to um, uh, make a prosperous society that will be able to deal with the problems in the future. Uh, you know, Holland has been doing it for, for a century or more, building dikes. Uh, to overcome a rising sea level. And this idea of, you know, oh my gosh, overnight Greenland and and Antarctica are going to melt. Oh my gosh, that's just crazy. Yes, they can melt uh, partially, but it's going to take thousands of years to melt Greenland, even (laughs) at the rate we're going. So this, this, you know, wringing of the hands, I mean, we've had warming in the past. We know that it, it doesn't, happen overnight. Uh, I think, I just wish there was a way uh, that we could convey. And then, of course, we get into these deals like the Paris Agreement, where we're paying other countries um, to cut back on their carbon dioxide. I mean, we can't even uh, pay for ourselves to cut back on carbon dioxide, much less India and China to cut back. Meanwhile, India and China are uh, at least China financially dominating the world, and here we are trying to support them using fossil fuels to help their economy. Yeah, and all the while, carbon emissions are going down. We're addressing the problem all the while, right? It's just In the United States, we've had wonderful uh, uh, carbon dioxide reductions. By the way, the negativity continues uh, with the left. Uh, if you've uh, looked recently at um, the wringing of hands over uh, these air uh, oh the the big fans what are they called um, you, we get energy from wind wind turbines yeah wind turbines uh, for some reason I couldn't think of that turbines anyway, sorry not turbines yeah, it's not a bunch of uh, seek windmills yeah. with uh, things on their head right and uh, <laughs> right so now they're wringing their hands that they kill birds, and they do, by the way, and uh, they make sounds. So everybody's upset now. Uh, you you can't win if you're gonna if you're gonna try to be clean energy. You're gonna have some, everybody complaining about it, it one way or the other. Well, uh, I think what we ought to do go ahead, is what's best for the economy. Sorry, you go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the economy is the engine that's gonna make any. productivity happened and so if you you know my friend bill fleckenstein talks about this all the time how if you view you know you need to generate productivity somehow so you need the economy to generate the productivity which is what provides the quality of living which this is what my beef is with you know socialists and marxists because they want they think they're going to be able to uh, you know enjoy the same quality of life 
under a Marxist system, under a socialist system, than they do right now. And so, like you said, actions have consequences. So if you want to drastically change, if you want to socialize the economy, these idiots have no clue what a socialized state-run economy would look like, what a, what a state-planned economy would look like relative to what we have now and what their quality of life. And they think they'd still be on TikTok fucking dancing around and having a good time. And like, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's not very well thought out by people on uh, the left sometimes. And it's generally, like you said, this alarmism, whether it's climate change or whether it's, you know, the nuclear plant down the street from my house, it is a, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, but it feels like a very, very bad way to live. It feels like a very it un- is a unhealthy way to, way to live. Negativity, it'll kill you. state of panic, right. Yeah, yes. constantly panicked and feeling as though, feeling as though we're constantly under siege, Mark. And if we don't address the right. problem today, we're going to wake up tomorrow right. and the world will be over. And so, what do you do? You live your whole life in that panic. You live your whole life in that state of mind over something that ultimately, you know, we really don't have control over. Whether you want to look at it from the angle of you know, the details about climate change and how the, you know, planet warms and cools, or whether you want to look at it on a broader scale of we have no idea how we got here and we have no idea where we're going. So, you know, why why not just fuck off and enjoy ourselves for a little bit? Boy, that's nicely said. I, uh, I think if we get this kind of back in circle to the press, you know, the press is not going to report, um, it looks like from global scientists that uh, global warming uh, can continue with no problems right. uh, for the next uh, 30 or 40 years while we work on uh, technological issues to solve the problem. No, they're not going to report that. They're going to report that AOC uh, thinks the new Green Deal, uh, unless it's passed, uh, er- everything will be destroyed in 10 years. I guess it's more like now eight years. Didn't she say that about two years ago? So I'm waiting uh, for eight years so that I can uh, say uh, that AOC is an idiot. But anyway, uh, if you want a good book uh, on this, maybe you've read it, Matt, Matt Ridley's, uh, Ridley's uh, The Net Rational Optimist. It's a great book about socialism i can't believe that in this day and age after the massive failures of communism and socialism that we have a country now uh that uh, not only is considering socialism and communism uh but uh there there is a large enough group of a population where we might have it right uh, it astounds me it just astounds me it wasn't if that I, it wasn't that you, long ago we went to war against communism and these people well, that are fighting for it, their relatives died fighting communism for a reason. And they say, and I'm getting on your turf here a little bit, so correct me if I'm wrong, that they say, oh, we don't want communism. We want something like uh, Sweden has, uh, a socialism. Well, if you tell the Swedes that, they go you know, they go ballistic. They yeah. don't have a socialism. They have a capitalism. And the reason that they have good social programs is because it's fed by the capitalist engine uh, uh, to make them money so they can have the good socialist programs. So uh, it's, it's scary when we start talking about 
um, well, critical theory is, the, the is prime, based the, on the prime minister of Denmark. Marxism. The prime minister of Denmark came out and said last year after Denmark was cited, I think it was in a presidential debate. I can't remember. But somebody publicly said, oh, we don't want socialism or, you know, we want the kind of socialism that Denmark has. And the prime minister came out and he's like, we're a market economy. We're a market economy. A you know? free trade market yeah. economy, I might add. Yeah. And like you said, the, the, that capitalistic engine is what drives, you know, the revenue for the government to be able to uh, provide the programs that it provides. But then that goes to another argument of whether or not the government providing anything, socialized health care, uh, you know, all the way down to breakfast cereal, whether or not the government's going to be able to allocate the capital better than private industry, better than the free market will. And that, that brings up a whole other argument. But Denmark is not a socialist country. Denmark is a market no economy. You know, Sweden's no a market economy. So it's... Uh, it's, well, let me uh, elaborate. Uh, I don't. Did you have something? To, I didn't want to interrupt you. No, I was just going to say it, it, to go back to climate change. I think there's nuance involved when you talk about it, right? Because there is. humans are contributing to climate change. The question is, yes. the question no is, no one denying that. Yeah, exactly. The question is whether or not, um, whether or not that's something that we need to uh, just be in a full blown panic about. Or whether or not we just need to be cognizant of, and and really, whether or not it's going to matter over the ten years, hundred years, thousand years, tens of thousands of years, like George Carlin said, and that one special. I always say this, you know, people are worried about, oh, we got to protect the Earth. The Earth is fine, he says. The Earth's going to be here. The Earth's been here for millions of years. It's the fucking people we got to worry about. So you're a scientist, Mark. What do you what do you say when? You hear something like, "Ah, oh, well, the scientific community has consensus on climate change, which may very well be the truth when it comes to humans having an impact. But then you see that conflated with this alarmism of, you know, we have eight years Correct. to live. Correct. And that's that's where I, I, I come down strongly against. Look, I, the message I try to give my students is a message of optimism. Uh, if you've read uh, Pinker, uh, who spent, uh, you know, seems like it was a 600-page book, uh, I read every page of it, glued to it, about how uh, our world has become less violent, much to the chagrin, I'm sure, of AOC and her cohorts. Uh, we, it's not just that. Our world has become better fiscally uh, for everyone. The standard of living over the last 30 or 40 years has gone up. The birth rates across the world are going down, even in poor countries. The, we should be filled with optimism right now. You know, back in the 60s, they were predicting doom and gloom, much the same way the left is doing now, saying overpopulation was going to destroy the planet, blah, blah, blah. This And the economists were saying, no, that's not true. If you let it play out, this will happen. And sure enough, the economists, not the biologists, and I lean towards the scientists uh, most of the time, but the economists have been right over and over again 
the world has gotten better, and it's gotten better because of free trade and capitalism. Now, has it hurt some people? Yeah, it's hurt some people in the United States. Um, our, our, our manufacturing has been hurt, and maybe we need to take um, uh, steps to cut that off. Uh, or at least help that group of people. I think, uh, I think, stopping China from taking advantage of us is a is a good good start. But uh, my message is of optimism, and if but nothing will destroy us faster than going to communism or a socialistic type of of system, in my opinion. And certainly, nothing could be worse than destroying our economy uh, to cut back on uh, carbon dioxide. What do you think about the balance of how we're reacting to the pandemic versus the economic impact? This is something we've never touched on and we've never talked about, so I'm completely unaware of what your views are uh, on this, and I'd love to hear them. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to mislead your audience. I, I feel very uh, uncomfortable about talking about COVID because I don't know much of, uh, much about it. Um, it does seem to me that COVID is not as nasty as we were first led to believe. And so I think that if we're careful in protecting people that are potentially susceptible to it, that we should try to keep our economy open because this is what, you know, this is the lifeblood of the world if you know if we continue to shut down our economies uh, and you know I think this is a political thing I, I think that um, if the Democrats win uh, they'll uh, open up the economy uh, just the way Trump has I think the reason uh, that the uh, at least a lot of Democrat uh, politicians have tried to shut down uh, the government was to hurt Trump and make him look bad so I think once we settle who's going to be the next president, uh, we'll uh, both sides will try to keep the economy open. It's just too important not to. But I, I have to go to you on this. What do you think? I mean, uh, you're you're much more knowledgeable on the economy than I am. So you tell me. Well, I was warning about COVID back in January before it became a headline and before anybody gave a shit about it. I was part of a small collective on. Twitter of people that saw the headlines coming out of China of 10 people here, 12 people there, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I joked about it a little bit in early January and then I got very serious about it and started to realize that, well, this has probably been going on for a month or two prior to this, at least, or at least a month or two before the Chinese government has let on. There's been significant amount of travel with the holiday season being right there and that it was likely already here in the U S. And so um, I prepared accordingly in January with a lot of people that follow me on Twitter, and I've called my family and forced them to do that. I mean, they thought I was insane. Mm -hmm. If you remember before mm -hmm. COVID, this was unheard of. Right. Nobody had ever, you know, right. like, we're going to have a global pandemic? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. So, I mean, I had to call my, my parents and really, you know, yell at them and say, hey, you know, better to be safe than sorry here, whatever. And all the things that I was worried about, the inability to get masks, the inability mm -hmm. to have... Uh, you know, because I was thinking, all right, there's a chance this could be an Ebola situation where right, you, really, so. yeah. Yeah, you really can't leave the house uh, ever, you know, and it's going to be a huge 
you know, so get the Tyvex, get the spacesuits, get the gloves, get the duct tape to seal off the doorways. Uh, you know, get the six months to 12 <laughs> months worth of food. I mean, yeah. I have, I have tons and tons. I have bags of rice bigger than my, bigger than my own body downstairs. And, uh, you know, of course all those things happened. And, uh, I was very critical of the Trump campaign's response in February, specifically when he came out and said, you know, we got 15 cases and it's going to zero. I said, all right, well, that's going to cost them the election. I was still on very heightened uh, alert about it. I knew that that wasn't the case. I knew that once it was found not to be the case that Democrats were going to run that on a loop and that that was going to... And then they came up with the task force shortly thereafter. And I remember thinking, okay, at least the very slow wheels of government, at least they're starting to turn, which is really, Mm -hmm. you know, more than we could hope for. I do remember, ironically, that in late January, when Trump cut off travel, that the Democrats were calling him a xenophobe. And Nancy Pelosi went for that, you know, she went gallivanting in Chinatown to show everybody that things were okay. Hey, check it out. I'm I'm hanging out with Chinese people. Do you see me freaking out? No, I'm not freaking out. And everybody's forgotten about that, by Uh, the way. Yeah, I know. And so, you know, I think that we probably could have done more quicker. With that being said, I don't think the job that we did was terrible. I think that to some degree, this was something that had already run its course and its its path had already been predetermined, probably in November or October of last year already. And, and to some degree, there's just nothing you can do about it. I think people forget that at the beginning... This was about flattening the curve and not overwhelming the healthcare system and not stopping the virus in its tracks. So I think the criticisms of not stopping the virus, I think, are logical fallacies to some degree. And I think that no data that has been uncovered since February of this year has given me uh, more pause than when we originally found out about it. I think most everything we've found out and not trying to trivialize the deaths and the people that have suffered, because I know people personally that have died, and I know families that oh, have been really? affected. And I, I, yeah, I don't want to trivialize those things at all. Mm-hmm. But I think Absolutely. that the information we've gotten since then, with things like the infection fatality rate and things like that, um, has all kind of acted as a tailwind. And I think I was telling my mother for eight months that the entire scientific community is working on the problem and that that's a lot of torque. You know, the the entire Mm -hmm. world has a vested interest in solving this problem. And so I've been, I've felt kind of confident since, you know, March, April. Um, And I think that shutting down the economy in its entirety at this point, given what we know, I think would be economic terrorism to some degree. Just knowing there's two things that happen, right, Mark? You have people whose livelihoods are just ruined more so than they already have been. People are already stuck in shit and trying to get their shit back together. Mm-hmm. And then you have the proposed solution by government, which is to print more money, which ultimately yep. uh, over a longer term could cause a much bigger problem as it relates to inflation and the cost of living for the same people that are suffering from COVID. Correct. So that's where I'm at. And I think I'm, I tend to uh, be in the same place. Uh, I, do, I do worry, though. Um, it just seems 
so strange, and I don't want to delve into conspiracy theories, but it does seem a little bit strange um, that we had uh, this thing happening from China just about the time of the election. China has made uh, no bones about it that they don't like Trump. So I, I'm not saying they did anything per se, but it does raise some eyebrows, well, at least with me. The idea that China is this innocent bystander standing idly by is ridiculous. The problem is that, you know, countries like China and Russia, I mean, they're very smart. They're very yep. suave in how they act. They're very smooth in how they present themselves. They're careful about the uh, headlines that they put out and the propaganda that they use. But behind the scenes... I was just talking to Danielle DiMartino Booth about this. You know, they discovered a guy who had infiltrated the New York Police Department turned out to be a Chinese spy. How many of those guys are out there? You know, this oh, is they what's seem to be everywhere. Yeah, this Whoa. is what's happening behind the scenes, right? So universities have them. Whoa. We have to be cognizant of that. And the other thing too is this: oh, you can't talk about the fact that this thing originated coincidentally, you know, 10 miles down the road from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And nobody's allowed to talk about that, right? Yeah, I don't get that. How 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 is it talking and criticizing another country becomes an attack on the people that live in that country that is uh their background. Uh, uh, what do I want to say? Their race. It has nothing to do with that. I mean, I can I can criticize um, a, a a China and not not be anti Asian. Right. Uh, so it seems insane to me that well, this is just the woke trying to silence people uh, over this whole thing. Yeah, I, I guess you know. I guess I think there's people that genuinely think that China is our friend. That, you know, they're this budding, fuzzy country that's just, you know, coming up to get their due on a global scale. And, you know, I, I mean, the the idea that people are willingly downloading TikTok and giving it access to their phones. I mean, that just baffles me. It just baffles me because all you got to do. Are is, there many people like that? Uh, do you think there are? I believe that nonsense. I do. I mean. You have to look at how we're not paying wow. any attention to stories like that. The, the Wall Street Journal did a wonderful write-up about Huawei years ago about the way that they were stealing intellectual property and how some of their employees had infiltrated Motorola and all these other companies. And it was very detailed. And I put it down. I was like, holy shit. Like, it's clear as day that that's what these guys are doing. And that kind of just gets lost out there in the wash somewhere. People don't. They should be adding that to a collective body of evidence as to why they should be skeptical, not disregarding it and just saying, well, I'm sure China has our best interest Correct. in mind. <laughs> well, in this day and age, with the evidence that's been put forward, I just don't understand how anybody can uh, not see that China has been stealing us blind. In fact, I, I've read where it may be the, the largest mass transfer of knowledge in the history of the uh, uh, world. So uh, it's, it's on almost biblical proportions, the amount of information they're stealing from us. Over uh, Has anybody seen their navies? Um, has anybody thought about the islands they're building so they can invade Taiwan? I mean, 
or or control the the oil in in the Yellow Sea. I don't I don't understand how uh, people can ignore this kind of stuff. This is not a, a, a originally. I think we all thought that if we allowed uh, China to join the, the World Trade Organization, that they would become wealthy and they would become good citizens of the world. That has not happened. They are not good citizens. And they have made no bones about it. They are America's enemy. Yeah, it's when you talk about Taiwan, too, it feels like it's just a matter of time. We're going to have to deal with that. I mean, they're going Well, they've said it is. <laughs> they say that they own Taiwan and and that they're, they're they have the right to take it back, right? Am I wrong? No, you're right. You're right. And I was just reading last week too that somebody was somebody had looked into the code of Huawei's operating system that they're using for their smartphones, which I think is called Harmony. Uh-huh. And if you, if you actually look in the source code, there are parts in the source code where it still says Android. Because they oh. they took the code from you know Google from uh, Android and they yeah, just ported it over right exactly and so I mean in terms of evidence I don't know what it's going to take to to wake people well TikTok and five G and Huawei man and how naive is Europe through all this whoa with yeah. Iran and China and uh, standing idly by yes so well. We'll see. I hope I'm wrong on that one. I guess my last question is, if you had to pick the leading, the the leading front-running forerunner to end civilization as we know it, what do you think is the most likely to happen? Even though it may be very unlikely still, you're a scientist, you're a geologist. What do you think is the, the, the worst case scenario for us? Well, you're going to think this is weird, but uh, let's get a little crazy here. Uh, <laughs> I think the species, uh, humans, uh, if if we don't destroy ourselves, uh, and I, and I and to answer your question, I think probably the the biggest danger to humans are humans. Right. But I think that we're going to evolve. We're, we're continuing to evolve as we speak. And I think that with the development of um, our understanding of the brain, uh, our understanding of computers and artificial intelligence, that uh, humans will evolve into uh, some kind of combination of um, electronics and uh, organics. and that the human race, as we used to know it, may be uh, something that we won't recognize in tens of thousands of years as a sort of bio-organic, uh, technologically, uh, um, I'm not sure the word, artificially intelligent being. Yeah, like cyborgs. Or... We just get taken over by artificial intelligence, which I'm not being—I'm not ruling out, which could destroy us. That feels like it could be close. Yeah, the singularity could be. I—I I worry sometimes about it. I think a lot of people have been dismissive of the singularity, but uh, 
but I think uh, Elon Musk and some others uh, may may be closer to the truth on this in the long run. You think the singularity I, is there's a chance that already happened? Oh no, I don't think so. Uh, who wrote about that? I just I read a great book on on how that could happen and it could already be happening. Um, maybe it was Peter Thiel's book, but anyway, uh, he was talking about how you could a stock market could be taken over with artificial intelligence, and uh, that the artificial intelligence could be uh, so intelligent that they would know how not to let on uh, that they're artificially intelligent so that they could be building up, you know, a financial empire without us knowing about it. it may seem a little far-fetched, but what would we expect from something that is many, many more times more intelligent than we are? I don't know. It doesn't sound very far-fetched because the markets are pretty much all run by algorithms and high-frequency trading, right. and, and it's all done right. electronically anyways. So it would be actually right. be quite simple. I mean, when you zoom out, the capital markets aren't some great mystery on how they work. Yep. You know, I think it would be a very simple problem for uh, for a computer to figure out. Yeah, I think so. What if somebody discover what if, what if artificial intelligence discovers, you know, uh, how to make money on the stock market and uh, then uh, collects a large amount of money? that uh, they can then, um, you know, buy all the equipment they need to construct and hire people to make, you know, I, I know it sounds like something right out of Brave New World, but who knows? I like to think about things like this. Yeah, I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> just because well, I Well, it could be a good thing. Uh, it, it just depends. I don't know. I read an article uh, a while back, probably like a couple weeks ago, and uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. Here it is, yeah. Uh, AI written editorial uh, warns, I will not be able to avoid destroying mankind. This was in The uh, the Guardian. Um, oh, how, how interesting. On September 8th. And it reads, uh, we asked GPT-3, which is OpenAI's powerful new language generator, to write an essay for us from scratch. The assignment for the essay was to convince us robots come in peace. And so they, they feed this thing this instruction, and this is what it writes. You know, it writes, I am not a human, I'm a robot, a thinking robot. For starters, I have no desire to wipe out humans. In fact, I do not have the slightest interest in harming you in any way. Eradicating humanity seems like a rather useless endeavor to me. If my creators delegated this task to me, as I suspect they would, I would do everything in my power to fend off any attempts at dis destruction. You know, and, and it keeps going on and on. You could read the Guardian article. But, like, I read shit like that, and I think, eh, the singularity may not be that far off. I mean, I mean, you don't think it could have happened no, I, I see in, your point. in a lab I see your somewhere? Point. You don't think a lab could have yeah. generated the singularity already? Well, people have suggested that the Internet may already be a singularity, that a, a, a sentient being. So I don't know. Pretty pretty interesting idea. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting that we were talking – I know we were talking about these geological phenomena, but now we, we talk about AI, and I feel like, man – that's got to be right up there on the top of the list. 
Well, Sam Harris uh, made a good point I, in a TED talk he gave, where uh, he said that um, you know it it it's not that uh, AI would necessarily be out to destroy us. It would just be uh, like us uh, building something and a bunch of ants getting in the way and us not knowing that we killed off, you know, several ant colonies. And maybe that's the way AI will perceive humans. So we'll sort of be like ants. They don't know that they're hurting us, but, you know, they're uh, after an objective. Right. Who knows what that might be. Right. And we just, they don't have any animus, but we just, yeah, we get stepped on. We get stepped on. Yeah. And at some point there's that there's the point where our our best interest and their best interest meet somewhere and that has to be that has to be dealt with whether it's them just indiscriminately stepping on us or we're both aware of the fact that you know we are at odds with one another mm-hmm. that that crux has to occur at some point, right? It doesn't. Yeah, it seems like it. Mark DeFont, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day today, brother. I uh, It was a fascinating yeah, conversation. So, I'm really glad that we Yeah, did. it's always great to talk to you, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I noticed you got a, a couple more podcasts of recent I saw on your uh, Twitter. I'd encourage everybody to follow Mark on Twitter. He still doesn't even have a 1,000 Twitter followers. His link is in the podcast description, and I'll, I'll put it on my Twitter as well. But uh, I see that you've been doing a couple more podcasts recently is that are you doing more than usual recently no uh i got asked uh to to just talk a little bit about uh, um the joe rogan show uh and it was actually about aliens i i don't know why but um i i get asked to talk about aliens because of my ted talk and the joe rogan show right sometimes but no, I, I I I can't say I'm doing more podcasts. I, I you got a special place in my heart, so I love coming on here. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm really glad that you know we decided to do that first talk because we we got a lot of stuff in common, and I love some confirmation bias. You know, just like just like the yeah. Next guy. So, <laughs> no yeah, let's get together soon, and uh, we'll talk again after the election. All right, Mark. That would be nice, Jeremy. Take All care. right, speak okay. to you soon. Take care. That was the one, the only. Professor Dr. Mark DeFont from the University of South Florida. Always wonderful to hear his perspective. Can't wait to have him on uh, again in a couple of months. Uh, Just a clear-headed, level-headed guy that I enjoy listening to. All right, fools. It's one in the afternoon. And, well, I'm going to take the rest of the day off. So I'm going to fuck out. Peace.